Hello, this is J.G. Hertzler. You may know me in my other incarnation as General Martok of the Alpha Quadrant, Kronos, First City, the Imperial Klingon Fleet. And you are listening, not to me, not only to me, but to Spoiler Country. Enjoy, but don't enjoy anything too much. That is not the Klingon way. Martok out. Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's J.G. Hertzler, isn't it? It is, man. He played More Talk on Star Trek DS9. He's been other Star Trek stuff. He's Wait, been how do you say it's More Talk? More Talk. M- or Martok. M-A-R-T-O-K. Oh, okay, Martok. I was like, More Talk? <laughs> it's More Talking. Yeah. Like what we're doing right now. <laughs> Every but time I you read the script, it's Jeff, like, More man. Talk. It's, yeah. it's, I just keep going because you keep telling me to do More Talk. Right, right. And you just, you just won't shut up. I get it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> So Mark well, JJ came on and talked with Jeff and they had a great time, man. We nice. Got, we were getting down we're, we're getting down to where we've had pretty much somebody on from every uh every season or every iteration of Star Trek. That's crazy. We need, we need the movies now and we need the original series. So That's crazy. That's crazy. It's kind of cool. It's super cool. Yeah. Well, I want to hear what JG Hertzler has to say. So that's why we just get <laughs> into it and listen to JG and his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we have the fantastic J.G. Hertzler. How's it going, sir? It's great. I don't know about fantastic. I don't know. Uh, that, that sort of makes me into a, a, a fictional character. Uh, <laughs> but I'll buy it. I'll, 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 I'll take that. To anyone who loves Star Trek, who enjoyed the uh, 90s Zorro TV show, you are certainly fantastic. Well, now that character on Zorro, the alcalde Ignacio de Soto of Cadiz, España, was indeed uh, fantastic. <laughs> I'm a very lucky person. I mean, to be able to do Martok and uh, alcalde in the same decade was you know, pretty wonderful. I mean, it, it really wasn't. It's impressive. And, and I went. I got to go back for for most of my our interviews. I go back and do some more research. I mean, I, I have seen the Deep Space Nine episodes before, but it was yeah. nice to revisit them. And your character really does hum. You know, when he's on camera, when you're on camera, you, you there's just energizes it. 
I don't know why that is, but it's, uh, it's just a, I think it's, you know, they say that any artist, I guess an act, any actor is um, happy to have five projects that they were a part of in their life that they're really proud of. And certainly Star Trek is the top of the list. And, and sometimes it just, whatever you're doing, just connects with the person inside of you and the person inside of the character connect like, like nothing else does. So I was lucky. I mean, going back into a little bit about into your background, you've had a very interesting life. Your, your parent, you had a father in the United States um, Air Force. Your mother was a French and Latin teacher. Those are, it seems like that's some very different types of uh, careers to have as parents. One, you know, definitely military, I, I assume, very serious, very focused on, you know, obviously defense, protection, things of that nature. And then the very creative um, arts of French and Latin. What was that like? What was it like to have them as parents? Was, was it a very balanced childhood then? Well, I have no, I have no, no, no way to compare it. <laughs> you know, but yeah, I, you know, my mother always wanted to be a teacher. She was always a teacher. And my dad signed up for the army in 1940 because he got wind that there was going to be a draft coming up pretty big. And so he joined the, joined the army as an enlisted man. And I don't, I don't know how he gradually got into, he loved, he, he loved to go fast <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> I have lots of pictures of him as a kid when he was a kid in the oh, way back 1920s going to car races and whatnot. And and he loved he loved to go fast. And I think he want, really wanted to be a pilot, but his eyesight was like mine. It wasn't so good. So he he uh, wasn't able to fly, but he was able to he was a main, he was uh, retired as director of maintenance at Andrews. It's called joint 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 Base Andrews now, but it was Andrews Air Force Base when he retired. It's where it's where Air Force One and all the Air Force Ones and Twos are kept. So his he was able to fly during World War II and, and the Korean War, but not as the pilot. He was always on board, but he was the engineer. It was like he was the Scotty of his day. <laughs> I mean, that was that's kind of amazing. Did he have a lot of uh, did he used to share stories of World War II a lot with you? Not one. Not one. Wow. Not one. I don't, you know, I, I had, when I was uh, in college, I started college in 68 and that's where, that was the Tet Offensive in, in Vietnam. And I have, I had lots of friends, not lots of friends. I had friends in high school that were drafted or joined up and never came back, but it was, I don't know why I was going. Why I was why I was going there, but the thing about the Vietnam vets that I know, and I think it was the same with my dad, but we never, never, we never went there, never talked about it. Every Vietnam vet that I've met in my life, because they're all my age group, just about, has a stack of pictures, a Polaroid pictures, about four inches thick, <laughs> and they p- keep them in a box with a rubber band around them. They don't bring them out very often, and they never ever talk about what they did, what was, what they, what happened in Vietnam. That 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 is so strange because looking at my uh, the current generation and maybe even my generation, where every thought you have is shared with everybody all the time. You can right. every, every little trip you go anywhere you visit, every 
dish you eat must be right. photographed, documented, and shared. It's uh, it's such a different generation that they did not want to share that part of them. No, it must have been, and, and I I know not whereof I speak because I was not there. I would have uh, my the luckiest number I ever hit in my uh, life, and I've been to plenty of casinos. The luckiest <laughs> number was 332, which was my birth date. It was chosen out of the fishbowl for that first lottery of draftees. That they were done by lottery starting in 68, I think. And if you, if you had a low number, like under 70, you were definitely going to be drafted in yeah. the army and go to Vietnam. So my number was 332. And so, you know, short of an invasion from Mars, I would not have called <laughs> up. Well, what was your what would your father think about the possibility of you being drafted? Well, I'm sure I'm sh- my dad was my dad was tough as nails, but I am sure that he would have preferred me not to have been drafted, not to go to Vietnam because um, it was a meat grinder, mm. and he had seen Korea. He worked on a lot of helicopters that would crash, you know, in in uh, Korea and uh, get them flying again. And he was stationed over there in uh, for a while during the Korean War. I don't think he would have taken any pride, if that's what you're uh, asking, in his uh, son going to Vietnam. Both my parents were pretty strong Republicans from the same small town in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's really between, I think it was, uh, what was the guy's name that was the press? George, uh, George Stephanopoulos. Oh, yes, James yes. Carville. James Carville says, you know, between... Pennsylvania is a democratic state in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia, but between it is basically Alabama (laughs) between those two cities. And so they're very, they're very, very Republican conservative farming. Basically it's farming country and it's less that way now, but when he was a kid and he was back in the fifties, when I was growing up, we lived in, I was born in Georgia. But I grew up in basically in Morocco and Germany and then Texas and then back to to the Washington, D.C. area. Was, he was retired there in, in Andrews. But I don't, you know, I, he he was not a hunter. He, he used to tell me a story about uh, a, a fawn being shot or a doe being shot right next to him. And he always he used to tell me that story that he was about to walk up to this doe and then a hunter shot the doe right in front of him. And I think that that changed his, not changed, that that helped to form because I don't know what it was before, but he was not a hunter and he had, there was nothing military about our household. I mean, I have friends that, that I grew up with on Air Force bases and whatnot, and they would, many of them would answer the phone. This is General Tubner's residence, Mike Tubner speaking. Or this is uh, this is Colonel Holmes' residence. I, we never did that. We said hello, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so that sort of fits in with with my talk because I was always being told by 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 Worf that you're but 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 Martok that is not the Klingon way. <laughs> one of the great, <laughs> one of the great lines I had, I think it was cut though from the show, was Worf. Anything a Klingon does is the Klingon way. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, that's basically it. I mean, you, you've also have had an amazing background yourself educationally. I mean, you've had, you had degrees in political science, a master's degree in set design. 
you've attended law school for a little while as well. How, how did you, like as an actor, I mean, is there a way you kind of merge all these disciplines into what you do? Well, you know, my, my security was a big thing. My parents both grew up during the Depression. So they had no experience. The only, the first musical I ever saw was one that I was in. And so we didn't, even though, I mean, Latin is, is not exactly the most creative enterprise. <laughs> it's it's a, considered a dead language by many, but I think it lives in every word in English just about that's spoken in French and, and Spanish, for that matter, and Italian. They're all based in Latin. I agree. But I don't know. I, 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 you know, I, I'm completely flummoxed by your question. I'm sorry. But, but I, do, I, I did I did want to say one thing. I, I, I The first Klingon job I got was with when Jonathan Frakes was directing a CD-ROM way back then. Jonathan Frakes was directing a CD-ROM called Klingon. And I auditioned for something. I, I don't know what it was. I, I forget what it was. I mean, the star of it was was uh, Bob O'Reilly because Bob was, was the Mr. Klingon at that point. He and Worf, anyway, back during Next Gen. And he, I, at one point I got to a part in the script and I, I really didn't know much about Klingons at that point. And I, and I said, well, there was a big sequence that was written in Klingon. And I said, I, I can't speak. I can't stumble through Klingon. I don't know how these words are mm. pronounced. I don't know what they mean. I, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. What can I do? I'll, oh, I'll speak in a foreign language. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I could do uh, French. No, that, that, that really sounds like French. Spanish? No, no. Oh, Latin. I'll do, I'll do it. Because many <laughs> years earlier, I had memorized several. I took, Cicero, I took Latin for two years into college. I kept taking Latin. I missed yeah. every important possible thing. Uh, <laughs> but of course, that I could have been taking, but I studied Latin. Anyway, I, I, I got to this point in the audition piece for Jonathan, and I was saying, well, you know, Worf, it's in post-great-tondomobutere, Catalina patientia nostra quemad fidem, los aludet, in solotus hike intelligit, imowero. And so Jonathan, and I finished, and Jonathan was laughing. He said, you know, Nobody has ever auditioned with Latin for me before. <laughs> I know you find that hard to believe, but, and, and he said, there's really, there's nothing written for you in this um, project, but you know what? I'm going to ask the writers to write you into the script. He, oh, wow. he, he says, because I love Latin. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a hard damn language. When, when I was in college, my first four years, I was thinking I was going to do something like paleontology. I was going to have to utilize Latin. Oh, yeah. And I took a semester and a half before I flunked out. And that's, <laughs> that's a hard, like, before the professor told me I should quit now and walk away. But that's Where a hard this? damn language. Um, this is the University of Rhode Island. Well, Rhode Island, my, my daughter is at, in her final year at Vassar right now, but we, we looked up at Ridsey. We, we drove up to, we looked at Brown and, and Rhode Island. And Ridsey, the uh, Rhode Island School of Design, loved Providence, you know. In fact, I went to Brown's in Providence, isn't it? Uh, yes. I, I went up to my nephew's graduation at, at Brown. This is many years ago. He's in his early 40s now, I guess. 
Mm. And I went, he, he had nobody to go to his graduation because everybody lived oh. out in California. And I was, so I went to it and, and standing, everybody was, I was standing there watching the graduation speeches and people would come out up in front of me and take pictures of, I thought of taking pictures of me. Yeah. And I said, what the hell is that? You know, I, I, they they look like Zorro fans, right? And and then I turned around, and it was Ted Turner, and <laughs> oh, not Bridget Fonda, uh, Jane Fonda, Jane yeah. Fonda, and Ted Turner were standing behind me. Oh, I, wow. said, oh. I said, "Oh, it's you," and he said, <laughs> "No, no, no, it's all about you." <laughs> <laughs> that that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um. You, I think your you was it your nephew you said yeah yeah your nephew made the right decision of not going to uh, <laughs> University of Rhode Island it, it, it's it's a it, it's definitely not Brown Brown is definitely a more upscale academic well, what, school what were you than studying? Your, uh, uh, you said paleontology my my initial idea was that I was going to prove to my parents that I could go to Texas Christian University for paleontology by doing really well at URI. Where I took, ended up taking anthropology and primatology instead. Oh. Then I ended up doing primatology for about three or four years, and then I went back to school to become an English teacher. So <laughs> there you go, the long Interesting. path. Interesting, but boy, primatology—that that would be—that uh, seems fascinating to me. I wanted to—I always thought I wanted to be an archaeologist, and I don't know how I didn't get into. Well, I went to Bucknell, and there was no there was no school of archaeology. <laughs> Bucknell, so uh, I guess that's probably a reason. I played football. I went to Bucknell to play football. Yeah, I heard you were so, a linebacker. Yeah, I was a linebacker. And, uh, you know, how bright can I be? Uh, <laughs> the, the best, the most important thing to be a linebacker is that you want to use your head as a battering ram. And uh, <laughs> I'm not sure. But um, I think, in fact, I've said it many times. I said, I think the Klingons are basically a race of linebackers because they do act that way. It, it it's kind of it's so funny when I was reading your backstory in, in various places, you felt like you were like destined to be a Klingon. I mean, you, you're you're a linebacker, you're but you're also Shakespearean. You have experience with Shakespeare and all your education. You're you're like a and I know I think you stated that there's a Shakespearean aspect to being a Klingon. Oh, absolutely. In fact, the Klingon the whole Klingon uniform, the way it was redesigned for I think the second film was operatic basically it was elizabethan operatic with the the way everything the tunic that was the short tunic and basically tights you know those klingon mm. pants are basically tights with a a <laughs> couple of rows of ribs on them yeah and then the boots yeah i have to agree with you it's they were very elizabethan so maybe you're right about it. i didn't think about that i've always whether you're a linebacker a football player in fact i'm writing a book i'm I'm about 95% done with it, but it's oh, a, wow. wrote it for my, for my daughter, basically, but it's, I'm going to uh, put it out there. It's called Confessions of a Klingon Linebacker. And <laughs> I think, I think there, I think you're right. You're, you're onto something. It, it, there is a strong, a strong thematic uh, connection through my life that how else, what else could I be but a Klingon linebacker? <laughs> now, now is, is it, Similar preparing to play a game as a when you're playing as a linebacker to preparing for a role in acting. Is there a sort of mindset that carries over? Well, 
I'm not sure. Everybody, everybody's, everybody's different. I mean, I was, I, the, I, I had no marketable athletic skill. All I could do was run as hard as I could into the backfield and disrupt anything that was starting to get going before they could complete what they, whatever they wanted to do. That's so Klingon. <laughs> yeah, it is so Klingon. You're right. And, and so I, I can't speak of anybody else. But I will say that I had many discussions with guys that were also, you know, some one guy would tape his socks up just so they were at the right right length below his knee. He'd have a tape. And I said, what, why do you, he said, well, it's, it's important that the, the, the height of my socks are remain perfect through the game. <laughs> so, and, uh, and I remember the last thing I would do before you go out to, before you go out to, to play the game was I would just look at myself in the mirror and just say, you know, it was a little Fonzie-esque. All right. Looking good. <laughs> that, that's fine. Oh. I mean, I mean, athletes are so superstitious, and I assume actors are as well. We're, did you have any superstitions at all? I am totally superstitious. I don't have any. The only religion I have is pure superstition. I, <laughs> I believe in them all. And the theater is loaded with theatrical superstitions. Like, you can't wear yellow on opening night. You can't have a, you can't have a peacock feather on stage because it's bad luck. It's the evil eye. <laughs> You know, you you can't whistle backstage, and there's a reason for that, of course, because it used to be the way the the grips would uh, communicate with each other. And if you whistled the wrong thing, a big sandbag might drop out of the out of the flies and hit you on the head. But I, I so I, I don't walk under ladders. I don't step on a crack in the sidewalk. I, I I don't do anything that might be possibly misfortune offer me some misfortune. So yeah, I, I think theater, there's a lot of theater traditions that are based on superstition. And there's a lot of uh, the same thing's true of theater, of film and television and, uh, and football, not so much. You just, let me see, what did I do things that were, I actually don't remember because I hit my head constantly <laughs> running at full speed into other people. So uh, anyway, yeah, I don't know if I'm superstitious per se. All I know is why risk it? <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> it. You know, why can't take that chance? I got enough going against me. I think it's a matter of confidence. If you're super confident, I don't think uh, you can be so, uh, superstitious. But if you have a doubt anywhere, you say, well, I don't want to risk that. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I agree. Now, now, now you played. Now you've played a lot of Shakespeare in in your life. Well, what roles did you play? I'm just looking at a thing I have here. I I taught a course called Shakes Shakespeare. Uh, a method. There's a method to the madness of acting Shakespeare. And, and to oh, to answer your question about a lot of act, a lot of actors on Star Trek did have classical training, especially in Shakespeare. I think for one reason, most of most of the people. No, no. A lot of the people that were were playing aliens like Klingons or or Romulans or what was what was Vulcans? I, I was trying to think what was uh, what was Gary Graham? Gary Graham was a Romulan, right? Anyway, those what you're what you're what you're required to do to play an alien is to speak in a very strange manner. Like, for instance, a Klingon would never use a contraction. And aliens wouldn't because it's too commonplace. So it creates a heightened form of 
American English in our cases, but it's a heightened form that sort of harkens back to Shakespeare because the the the, the actor's job in Shakespeare is, uh, for for instance, what I teach is there's the truth of the line and there's the grace of the line. So you not only have to understand why you're talking, who you're talking to, what the what your biography your completed biography is, what the circumstances are, what action you're taking. But you also have to do it with Shakespeare in verse, often. It's not all in verse, but it's either prose or verse. But the prose is magnificent, and the verse is, is just lifted a little bit. Not, not things that rhyme, you know, every, the end of every line is a rhyme, but it's, it's verse, called literally called blank verse, which means it doesn't, it doesn't have to have the exact rhyming meter or rhyming sounds or anyway, a lot of the actors who played aliens were Shakespearean trained. And uh, that's true of Gary. That's true of, of Biggs, Casey. It's true of Armin. It's true of Rene. Rene Aubergenois was one of the greatest Shakespearean actors we had in this, in, in the American theater. Armin is the same. So, I don't know why I'm saying all that, but there is a definitely a connection between Shakespeare and training and uh, speaking in a heightened language and aliens on Shakespeare. Is that what you meant? There was a, in the special feature in Deep Space Nine season seven on the DVD, you stated that they tend to go with people who can operate in a strangely heightened reality, somehow make it as close to reality as you can. Yeah. we had um, make, that, Yeah. Is that what you meant by strangely heightened reality? Exactly. We had to be able to, we had to, we had, think of us. Well, I mean, what we looked like rock star slash motorcycle maniacs <laughs> with teeth that were just hideous and speaking in a heightened form of language, you know, language that often we, we got a chance to use that had no meaning whatsoever to very 99% of people watching. Are the one, there are the one percenters who have learned, taken it upon themselves to learn Klingon. But yeah, that's exactly what I meant. And, and I still think that's true. It, the, it, the, it, the, the, the job was to make it believable. That's it. It just be honest with your approach. And so honesty is, is important, but also an understanding of how to lift the language so it doesn't sound unapproachable. Anyway. That sounds like the same philosophy as an actor, especially today, would approach Shakespeare. Because obviously with Shakespeare, a lot of the listeners are not going to pick up the language as quickly as it's spoken if you're watching a play um, or a movie or whatnot. But once again, but the actor themselves, through the performance, kind of makes allows you to understand what's being said. Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, Patrick, Patrick Stewart taught a Shakespeare workshop. I think it was the last year that he was on Next Gen. He decided he wanted to teach a workshop because he had studied at the National Theater or the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London as a young actor. And then went to, I guess he was part of the National Theater, you know, making a cool 250 pounds a week as opposed to 12 million, 15 million a film. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he learned, basically, he was, for 20 years or 25 years, he was a Shakespearean actor in, in England. And he wanted to share what he had learned over his time studying the Bard 
with the actors in, in Los Angeles. And I think I remember him telling me that he, I, I got involved with it because he was friends with one of the women on, in the show. I can't remember her character's name, but it was Jennifer Hector. Hetrick is a relative of mine from Pennsylvania. It's a Hetrick is a, is a family name in my family. And so she, I think she recommended me to help him find a suitable place to do the workshop where we ended up doing it. We, I, I, I mean, I drove with him all over Hollywood looking for a great, cause I knew all the, the byways and the slyways, but really nothing suited to, to uh, Jean-Luc Picard. So what, where we ended up doing was on the studio H, which was the musical recording uh, studio on at Paramount. So every Saturday, We'd have a uh, Shakespeare class from about 10 o'clock in the morning till about eight at night. It was a long, I mean, there were 15 people there. James Avery was part of it. Many other people that you would know. And if Patrick couldn't get there for one of the Saturdays, if he was busy, he would bring in somebody to take his place. One time he, he asked, we I came to class and there's Ben Kingsley teaching, you know, so <laughs> it was a remarkable time for me. And forget what. Oh, the thing that the thing that Patrick said. He said, "If you're doing Shakespeare correctly, on any given night, if you're doing the performance successfully, you can feel the audience breathing with you. And hmm. it's it's not easy. It doesn't happen very often. But when it does, it's a remarkable experience. And he would say." John, John, ah, why are you why, why are you speaking with such a high voice? I said, well, it's uh, Richard the Th Richard the Second. Is it? He's like the the poet king, and I I thought I would like. He says, no, no, <laughs> just <laughs> use your use that that magnificent tool that you have. You know, you have such a good range. And but he said he said there are so many things to track. Like, because as, as I was saying with Shakespeare, there's the verse, which includes a zillion kinds of figures of speech. There's the, the scansion, which, which, which refers to the, the meter, to da, 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 da. It's short and long emphasis on each, each line could, could be, it's called iambic, iambic pentameter, but it's almost never do you find a, do you find a, I'm getting to. I'm getting into the weeds. Never mind. Uh, no, no, no worries. No, I'm an English teacher. I love it. <laughs> oh, you are. That's right. Yes. Well, you know meter in poetry, and indeed, uh, every change in meter has a meaning in Shakespeare. Every it means the person's confused while they're talking. The person is incredibly confident while they're talking. The person is attacking while they're talking, and it's all. All those things are included in the meter that uh, Shakespeare chose to write that particular thought in. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, that's why, that's why it's Shakespeare. <laughs> what and, can I say? And it's kind of interesting when you think of Shakespeare and I know this is maybe I'm overstretching the comparison here, but it seems like there is something similar to the idea of Star Trek and Shakespeare, as far as you're dealing with two literary things that have such a deep legacy to it, that people have certain expectations of you when you do it. Well, I know that Roddenberry wanted to obviously from the first uh, few series that he, series that he did, 
He wanted to deal with issues that were critical to understanding, if it's possible, mankind. And so did Shakespeare. So what they were dealing with was human nature and in all of its forms, just love in all of its permutations. For instance, love in in the musicals, Kiss Me, Kate, Taming of the Shrew. Taming of the Shrew is about this woman who is basically a tyrant to her family, very troubled. And she meets this man, Petruchio, who is, who spends, who basically, quote unquote, tames her by throwing her in prison, not feeding her, treating her like garbage, and she falls in love with him. And so you got to ask, what the hell is Shakespeare writing about? There, you know, because yeah. it's, it's always played with a wink and a nod at the audience, but that's not it. <laughs> he he would, you know, he deals with the idea of love and all of its permutations in almost, well, so many of his plays. Um, that, that, yeah. say, that definitely did not probably age well, <laughs> that play. Which, which didn't? Tammy of the Truth probably did not age well with today's audiences. <laughs> oh, no. No, no, no. It, it absolutely does. It's the Stockholm Syndrome. Okay. It's the, it's the you know, you know what that is. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, I do. Well, the, out of the being a, a captured, what's it called? A, what's the, what's, I can't think of the word for it. It's like, a, it's not prisoner of war, but it's similar probably. Yeah, it is. Like a, like a prisoner of war. At some point, it often occurs that the prisoners become the, ad, the adoring fans of their captain, of their, of their, the captives become the fall in love with their captors. And it's for a, a, a plethora of reasons that psychologists deal with, you know, constantly, I'm sure. But in fact, it's true. It exists. And I think that's the way, that's what, that's the, I guess maybe it's my thought. <laughs> I, I, that's the what I think. That's the kind of love that Shakespeare was talking to us about in uh, Taming the Shrew. Anyway, it it is amazing how much of Shakespeare is absolutely universal. I I, t- I teach it like I, said, I teach it to my students. We teach. I teach at a therapeutic therapeutic high school, so I do have all four grades. So I teach Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, mm. Julius Caesar, and and now uh, Hamlet. Hmm. And I try to infuse to my students the universality of the stories and that the the reason why these stories survive for 400 years is because there's a truth in them and that truth survives centuries. And that is true, I think, of, of Shakespeare. And that there's a truth to that in Star Trek. The, the ambition and the ideas behind it are universal, which is why you know, the original series is still holds up whether or not the special effects do doesn't matter. The right. stories do. And they always have. <laughs> I don't think any other play, any other play, any other TV show has an audience that's worldwide for over five decades. You know, it, they just, Star Trek is unique in that way. And I, 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 I firmly agree with you that it is for the same reason Shakespeare is classic. Roddenberry dealt with issues that were vital to understanding humanity, and he dealt with them in a, he used science fiction to study his topics. 
Mm. Shakespeare used blank verse and the vasty fields of France or, you know, the throne rooms of England, the, the, atop of castle walls at Pomfret Castle. Anyway, I agree. Basically, I'm saying I agree with you. <laughs> yeah, and I think a lot of people point to Star Trek and the diversity of the cast, which is fantastic. But I think that the reason why Star Trek is so universal is because apparently no matter what culture or country you live in or your background that you have, the idea of that optimism and hope is universal. That's the universal aspect of Star Trek that everyone can hold on to. You know, it's, I, 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 it makes me wonder what Roddenberry would be thinking watching this world now with, I was just listening to the news and, you know, variant forms of, of coronavirus are now, they fear, you know, Fauci and whom they fear that there's, yep. the fear is, is challenging the hope to such a degree. Mm. I don't, I've never seen it in my life. This is worldwide. This is, it's almost a, a, a science fiction yep. world that we're living in right now. But unfortunately, it's real. And the, the, the thing that is interesting, potential, and maybe also unfortunate, well, I mean, obviously, we have there's supposed to be uh, this four strains right now. Supposedly, they're out there. The, the, the common one, the one in Brazil, one in Africa, one in right. England. But the part that you think would be potentially hopeful for the future is that at this moment, unlike any time probably since Spanish influenza, the world is sharing a common experience. And you think there'd be some benefit to sharing a common experience, even if, especially in one that is tragic. But I would, I feel that that's not going to be the path we're going to follow. Well, I wonder what they, I wonder what path was followed in, in 1918. I, I don't know that it's certainly, I don't think it, I, 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 if you're implying that you think that maybe it, it, it was a shared experience that brought the world together somehow, I don't, I don't know that that's true. And I certainly don't think it's true right now because, I mean, I just was able to get the first dose of the vaccine, the uh, Moderna vaccine. And then like two days later, it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> the new strain is, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, doesn't, doesn't work on the new strain. So, I mean, I'm exaggerating, but. No, but no I, I know exactly what you're saying. I had, I got my vaccine on Wednesday, last Wednesday, uh -huh. a Moderna as well. Yeah, and I'm not feeling too good to know that Brazil is apparently going to uh, not work on the Brazilian I, strain. I know, that's exactly <laughs> the words I would choose. I'm not feeling so good about that. <laughs> um, I mean, I think they found it, what, Min Minneapolis? I think they found it, or somewhere along there, they found it, was like, Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. So, there, you know, we'll see what happens, but it's like the world is tired of waiting to see what happens. You know, people are, people have, People are chomping at the bit to have some sort of normalcy. Not only did we have the normal, the lack of normalcy in health issues, but politically, the whole world is, it seems, abnormal. So uh, at least it, uh, you know, I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it, 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 like I said, it, it is problematic. And it does feel that the reason why there's four strains now is because we didn't do what we should have done when it first started, which was obviously shut things down, try to be more courteous about it. Yeah. And I, I think we, I, we bought time for the virus. It's a real tough thing to combine, you know, individual freedom 
you know, living in a society that emphasizes individual freedom necessarily ab above all else with the, with the idea that you have to be mandated to wear a mask. <laughs> they don't go, they don't seem to go together. And, and so the result is confusion, fear, and spread. It does feel like there's a lack of understanding of what they mean by freedom. Like freedom seems to be confused with I can do what I want, whatever I want, instead of freedom being the opportunity to do the right thing for your fellow citizens. You know what I'm saying? Well, you're living in a society. You can't have a society if everybody wants to do exactly what they want, when they want to do it, how they want to do it, because then you don't have a society. You got a bunch of cave people. You know, whoever has the biggest rock is going to get their way. Right, right. Um, anyway, yeah, that's I, I, it, it, it's definitely unfortunate. And I, I think by the time I get my second vaccine, I'm going to have to need a new vaccine to deal with whatever it's coming around the corner. <laughs> I know. I know. They say that we can get a booster of some sort that will will adapt. But then then you need a booster for the booster for the booster for the booster. Yeah, I, I will say that. News of the Brazilian strain, and with watching CNN today, listening to Fauci, kind of was, was the realis realization that this is not going to end. I really thought when the vaccine came out, I was like, all right, another three, five, six months, we'll be done with this. Now I'm thinking, yeah. well, this is going to be, this is, this is the world now. This is life. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's not true, but it will, it's definitely going to take longer before a normalcy can be returned. But, you know, the, the new normal Zoom shows, this show, even though it's just speech, it's like a telephone yeah. call. It's like a telephone call that people can listen in on. But uh, that's uh, that seems normal. I mean, what, six months ago? Uh, it's a what? It's a Zoom what? It's a, <laughs> you know, what are you talking about? It's very hard to do play. I mean, there's no production for film, television, or uh, mm. or theater. There's no concerts. But but there's Zoom concerts and there's Zoom shows. It's very hard to do. I've done a couple plays on it for theaters that do that presented them as a Zoom production. Timing is almost impossible, and timing, you know, time is important in theater. And anyway, I forget what I was. What the yeah, and that was. and I and I and I will say the one thing about Zoom as well is that. It, it does give it, it unfortunately pushes you away from your audience, which is obviously going to be, uh, I'm sure, problematic for any theater. Oh, yeah. Heck, heck, yeah. No, it's very difficult. I don't think most of the theaters that I know, uh, most of the theaters that I've spent my life working in are closed and most, at least half of them will not open again. It's it's a devastating blow to to live performance. And I don't know. I'm curious to find out what's going to be on the other end of it because if there is another end of it, I hope there is, but I, I just don't know what to expect. I think I think that's where everyone is. Everyone's trying to figure out where do we go from here, and I assume it's ad lib. You can figure it out as you go. Yeah, I think we're going to have to because the Fouch the Fouch monster is definitely warning us. As gentle as he he's perhaps the most gentle bad news giver that <laughs> that I know of. He's very very. Well, he's eight. Plus, he's eighty years old. He's seen a lot. I mean, think yeah. of the eighty. That's like nineteen what, thirty or nineteen, nineteen forty. Nineteen forty. Yeah. Born in nineteen forty, before World War Two. Think of what he's seen. My grandmother 
lived to be 107. She was born in 19 or in 1893. Oh, and wow. Died in 1999. Think of the world that she saw and yet somehow missed the coronavirus. That that, uh, that is that's amazing. I mean, she lived before I before the invention of the airplane, and she saw humans land on the moon. <laughs> that's exactly. A hell of a, exactly. That's a, I I I had conversations with her. I said, Grandma, you you're you see these guys are landing on the moon, and there was not even the idea of flight when you were born, and it was uh, it was astounding. Yeah. What? But what? What? I was going to say something about the depression. People were born in the depression. Were very careful, and that that was attached to the idea of risk taking. And I think my parents were both. They were both born in 1912, 1913. So they grew up in the basically adulthood in the depression. The adulthood welcomed them, and the depression, well, the Great Depression, welcomed them. So. That's kind of devastating, too. Everything changed in their lives. And then World War II, you know, it, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. Well, you know, the, the, I guess the one true lesson is the world doesn't slow down ever. <laughs> Let's hope not. If, I it, mean, if it slows down, the, the continents are going to start moving. <laughs> exactly. You know, I, I actually had an interesting realization. This is a few months back. I realized that my students, I will never again have a student who was alive before 9-11. Right. Because obviously the oldest you're going to be is 18 in right. high school, usually. Right. right. So, and I, was, and I realized this, this feels like once again, sort of almost like a 2010 when they're talking about the uh, children of the two sons. I, I kind right. of feel like I'm in the same world where I was like the, the post 9-11 existence. And it's just, a, it's, it's weird. It's Time is weird. <laughs> it is weird. And, you know, my daughter's 21. And back to my book, I was, I'm writing it basically for her because she was, I had 50 years on this earth before she was born. So, and she doesn't really know anything about me in those 50 years. So I'm writing it, trying to catch her up with those 50 years of her father's life and, and how it melted into hers. So, but that's the reason I'm doing it. So, to let her know what life was like before she got here. And and just a slight ver the ver just slightly in in reading about you like I said you and your that your life those 50 years are amazing. You actually worked in the Nixon administration. I read. I did. I did. That, 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 that I, I read that I was like holy that's absolutely crazy. <laughs> yeah. I was I literally was on the mall collecting money. It was I was collecting money Government workers against Nixon <laughs> at the inauguration. I literally was that. And I was in Watergate like the night before it was broken into. Oh, wow. I mean, they had a radio station in the Watergate on the same floor, right, ne right near the DNC. And I was in there doing a commercial about, about Nixon. <laughs> it was Ike, uh, uh, all work and no play makes, makes Dickie Boy... Uh, a sad fellow, and <laughs> it was it was an anti-Nixon spot that played on the radio <laughs> for the inauguration. Anyway, the music, the, the only song I remember is that'll be the day when you say goodbye. Oh, that'll be the day. <laughs> and it was it was it was the night before the break-in happened uh, oh, wow. at Watergate. That, that that's amazing. You you've lived a hell of a life. 
we've all seen some stuff, man. Jeff, we've all seen some stuff. And when you, if you take it all together, the one thing I can say, I should, I, I advise strongly is write it down, write down mm. the memories, write down the events, write down the dreams, write down the failures, write, write it all down because, uh, it could, it, otherwise, it's lost. It's it's here and gone. And anyway, that's why I'm doing this. So, one one, one question I did have for you. I'm um, going back a little bit to, to acting. Do you think people who do act in sci-fi shows like Star Trek get the credit they deserve as actors? No, I, I don't think. I think it's incredibly underrated. Uh, I because you not only have to. You not only have to touch the human heart with what you're saying, but you have to do it, you know, wearing 16 layers of latex and strange teeth and bizarre talking about things that happen on another planet. <coughs> it's really, and yet you have to have approachable drama for the, for the viewer. And it's extraordinary when, when sci-fi is done badly, you know, Lord God, it's, bad but when it's good it is you know it, it strikes a human chord like nothing else and like not, no other kind of theater film or television i remember the the longest line i have ever been in at the theater was when the empire strikes back was opening in new york i stood in line for that movie in i lived in new york then and right behind me was John Malcheri, who was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. <laughs> I said, wow. Anyway, it was, yeah, I, I forget what the question was, but I know it was an important one. Do people who get proper credit. It's not just entertainment. It is, it is so much more. It is, it is human drama amplified to a power of, Ten, you know, it's not just, it's not a soap opera, and it's it's not it's not a rom con, and it's not it's not a, a cop show that's dealing with you know crime and solving the solving the crime, solving the punishment. It's really about the human condition. That's really all it's about, and it it must include in it arresting imagery of another time, another place, another world that speaks to the same devastating things that can happen in our own life. Anyway, I agree with you. I, I think it's sadly underrated, and I don't know why that is. And I, I do think there's some a bias against science fiction just because it, it on the surface, it, it seems that there's it maybe more static than other more openly dramatic programs but star trek i mean there's so many wonderful actors who have come through star trek including yourself and and i think people don't also accept or realize the you know the importance of even the alien characters like the klingons over the years have been made into a very fascinating culture and obviously as playing general mark talk you're part of creating that very rich the richness of that klingon culture that does have you know like a reality all of its own well i got a chance to embody it but i didn't create it it's the writers the writing ron moore for instance is my personal hero 
you know, he, he's written so much, but everything he wrote about the, whenever he wrote one of the Klingon episodes and he wrote most of them, it, you knew it was going to be dealing with deep cultural things that beliefs that Klingons hold that they either have to find a way not to violate or, you know what I'm saying? Yes. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't just throw throw it out, uh, you know, and hide it in a bunch of uh, batleth fights or, or or landing somewhere. But he he dealt with issues just like humans have to deal with each other. The Klingons, that's what he wrote. He wrote human. He wrote deep investigations of human nature in a Klingon body, basically. And the interesting one, interesting about you in how you created the or how you developed the character of Martok, is that Martok was originally introduced as a changeling that wasn't the real Martok. And later on, you get to play what would be the real General Martok. Did you first know when you took the role of the changeling that he was going to be the changeling and that eventually you would get to play the real version? And did you make any decisions in your acting to incorporate that? No, first of all, I didn't know. But secondly, I was not supposed to go on beyond that uh, episode where he gets... uh, turned into plasma and and it was it wasn't until about three or two weeks later the I got a call from Ira Bear who's who's the the sole this the sole father of uh, Star Trek for he said you know we're we're gonna bring you back don't worry John we're gonna bring you back because it it finally struck us that ah Worf now can have a a friend, a father figure, a friend that he could, they could bounce ideas off of, and and it won't be about flying a spaceship or or attacking an enemy, but about things that Klingon adults could talk about, like the speech that I had that Martok had in advising Worf about marriage, about you know that's it's an obvious choice that I would bring that up, but it. it I can't tell you how many viewers of Star Trek, of DS9, and followers of, of what Martok did and said have have said how much that scene meant to them about sharing the joy with someone and not coming home to uh, an empty house, Worf. You know, it was it was it. I had I had a young man in Australia at a convention that said. And this is the only time it's happened. He said, I just want you to say, I just want you to know that you're the reason I did not harm my parents. <laughs> I said, Oh, wow. <laughs> because I, I, he was definitely troubled, but he said, I, I asked myself, I paused and asked myself, what would Martok do? <laughs> oh, said, wow. oh, my Lord. Uh, <laughs> you know? So. Anyway, that it's you never know how you're going to affect somebody's life. And we've all I'm sure we've all had you've probably had students that said something to you that has stuck with you, the words and the feelings, the thought for uh, decades, for years and years. And that is um, true. And you never know what's going to affect the soul of another human anyway. And, you know, and, and a lot of your scenes that you played in Deep Space Nine were played alongside uh, Michael Dorn, who plays Worf. Right. And Worf, Michael Dorn's Worf, I feel kind of that character helped define Klingons for at least how we understand them, because obviously 
the original Star Trek had Klingons, but I don't think they were, they really delve into what it was to be a Klingon oh, until right, no. Worf. And so Worf is sort of, was sort of like, I don't say he's not the first Klingon, but he's the first well developed, right. you know, well researched Klingon. When when you first uh, played Martha, did he offer any advice on how to be Klingon? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. Michael is very. Michael is very insulated. I just saw him. I talked to him the other day. He was doing a, a, a Zoom show for somebody. It was Dan Devey. And, and Dan had asked me, can you come on? Can you just burst into the show and, and you know, and, and say hello to Michael? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So I did. And Michael said, he said, and you know, John, that when this where if this ever happens, you know, the Captain Wharf thing, if it ever, you're going to have to go back into makeup. And I said, Michael, I'm in makeup now. Martok is my street makeup. Um, <laughs> and I feel that's like awesome. That, yeah. But he's, I, I, Michael is a very easy to love human being. He's just a tremendously sweet man and but on the other hand he's very quiet he doesn't he doesn't offer his opinion about anything or anybody he works with whatever you give him and so no he never said you know you might want to think about this whereas opposed to me where i would be i would happily share my uh, opinion on everybody's <laughs> performance at all times yeah and with bob I mean, o'reilly who sucks yeah. <laughs> and and i mean your character martok you're you pretty much were the father figure for Worf. was that an interesting dynamic on set no it really didn't it, it, it didn't translate off set it was all totally in the show and i never had any i'm i'm really not it's like jimmy stewart said if i were as smart as all the people that i've played or as sensitive i'd i'd be a very good person <laughs> but I'm not. And uh, yeah, no, what was I going to say something about Worf? I I didn't, I don't think I've spent most of the last 23 years, I guess, doing conventions since, since like the two years before in 98, I've, I've been doing conventions for Star Trek all those years. And I've become my best friend and really my brother is is Bob O'Reilly, you know, Bobby. We are we actually just occasionally call each other to comment on the news and end up laughing for another 45 minutes on the phone, you know. So and that's that's truly great to have. And you know, we're dire enemies. Uh, I had to kill him to get to my my chancellorship. You know, that that was a, a fantastic testament, I think, to how popular Martok became, that they actually had your character defeat Garon and become the new chancellor himself. I mean, was that something you talked to the writing staff? You're like, hey guys, I would like to be chancellor at some point. I mean, how did that even develop? No, I, I of course I never did, but but Bob will not hesitate to remind me. Yes, I was a I was Klingon Chancellor for what about 11 years. You <laughs> were Klingon <laughs> Chancellor for one episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny perhaps but not today yeah yes uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> he, yeah, he, he never he will never ever let that go uh, and i wouldn't want him to 
that, that, that is awesome. I also read a story about you as well when it comes to Deep Space Nine. There's an episode by Inferno's Light where Martok is offered the return of his eyesight in his left eye, okay? Right. Uh, which the character rejects. And I read that this was due um, to a conversation between you and Stephen Burr. Why was yeah. that detail important to you that he refuses the eyesight in the left eye? Like, what was, why was that something that you held on to? Oh, well, he said, first of all, I have a, I have a bad left eye, no matter what. I mean, I've, I've had it since birth, a lazy eye, and uh, it's just gotten worse over the years. So I don't really use my left eye. I can see movement and light, but that's about it. And at one point, Ira came up to me and said, and don't worry, John, we're, we're, we can restore your eye. We can give you an artificial eye. I said, no, 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 I don't want an eye. I mean, how good is it that I, I look like a pirate already? And, and I have now one, my left eye is scarred shut. It's perfect. You know, so I, I said, I think people will love it. And I know I do. So they didn't give me an artificial eye. I just, and I said, and it was, it was a good choice because I think it's, it's one of the, one of the reasons people like Martok, there's a few people that have come up to, and said to me, you know, I have, I have this uh, ailment or this disability or that disability. And it's always been a joy to see Martok who only had one eye, who was, you know, blind, half blind to be able to succeed to the chancellorship. <laughs> so I said, oh. Well, whatever it takes, I said, but that's, I said, no, no, I, I did it purely as a, the theat for the theatricality of it. I said, don't give me a, you know, no. <laughs> do, do, and do you, do you think the character Martok would, re, would have refused out of pure oh, pride? Absolutely. The Klingons would never have an artificial eye, please. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, no, it was ridiculous on all levels. And he thought he would be doing me a favor. And I said, no! <laughs> I mean, <laughs> your understanding of Martok really is deep and impressive. And I read that you actually have written two books. One is The Left Hand of Destiny Parts 1 and 2. Yeah. And this, and the story focuses on Worf and Martok. After, after Deep Space Nine series is already ended, so this is post-ending of the show. Right. What inspired you to write the stories? And, and how did you go about getting them accepted into Star Trek canon? Well, I was asked, would you be interested in writing a book? And I said, yeah. Uh, he said, well, come up with an idea. And uh, I said, you know, I thought about it for a while. And I said, I think I can do that. I think I can do a really an Arthurian type legend story with Worf and Esri Dax, I know. And one of my favorite characters in it, of course, was Aaron, who he wasn't there as uh, Nog, but he was there as a character that I created for him which was basically Nog, but it was, his name was Far, P-H-A-R-H. And I named him Far for the specific reason that he would, when he's finishing a conversation, he had a chance to say Far Out. And, and, and Aaron loved that. So, but yeah, you know, that's another man that is just my dearest friend, gone. We had such a such a uh, warm relationship on and off the stage, Aaron, and I, I miss him terribly, terribly, mm. terribly. Do, do you think you're going to write any more Star Trek novels in the future? No, this book I'm writing now is going to be my my I think my salute to Star Trek because it's basically it's all the things that 
you know, my life in Morocco, my life, you know, going through my football career <laughs> at Bucknell and going up into struggling in theater that I had no, no background in. I had no, you know, my back, my, uh, anyway, I eventually got a, an MA from University of Maryland in set design. But other than that, I didn't study uh, theater. And I wish I had. I just was looking at the Yale School of Drama catalog that I've had around here since 1972. It's old, but I'm looking at the courses that were offered and it just reminds me how much I don't know in the area of endeavor that I've spent my life doing. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I think it's wonderful that you're an English teacher, by the way. I love, obviously, my mother being a teacher. I want to say thank you for your service. Because I, I just, I, 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 my mother was a stickler for grammar, and any Latin teacher is a stickler for grammar. I think, and I can't tell you how many times the subjunctive form of the verb to be in the past tense were was to be used as a conditional with if, you know, <laughs> as opposed to what. It, And American English just disregards it completely, you know. So it's I have the greatest respect for for literature and and language. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, what what you've done with Star Trek has also been amazing from from my perspective. Sorry, my dog is barking. What kind of dog? Um, it's a blue healer. Oh no wonder she's barking. He or she? Uh, it's a she. Yeah, she, she says, come on, pay attention to me. I've given you enough time now. It's my turn. <laughs> yeah, she, it's like, you know, she should know when I'm recording. and just right. <laughs> but, but anyways, um, just like a couple more questions. So you've appeared in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Enterprise, Star Trek Lower Decks, and Star Trek of Gods and Men. What, what, why do you think not only has Star Trek endured so well, but that you have, what does it feel like to be such an integral part of Star Trek over the years and into so many franchises? You know, I'm just, Jeff, I'm just really an actor. I mean, I you audition for something and if you get it, you get it, you don't, you don't. And I got it. And then it just so happened that like 40, 40 other tumblers uh, turned over in the, in the magic lock. And it made me, it got me involved in all those shows. I I love the I do a start I do Martok on Star Trek online as well and Bob is on it is on the show too uh, game and uh, so I was very lucky I love going back to the character I got to say it's not very I don't have to go very far and <laughs> it's a, Bob used to tell the story that when he first started on Star Trek Michael Westmore said to him, you do know that you're in this now for life. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and Bob said, I didn't know what he was talking about. Now I do, of course. But he said, oh, yeah, you're part of something very, very unusually large. And the same thing's true. He, he never said that to me, but I know that he felt that way. And I've heard that before. And it is part of something that is, it's a family that's worldwide and almost uh, timeless anyway. Are, are, you, are you going to attend conventions once COVID, if COVID ever subsides? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we're, we're able to do conventions. Conventions happen because we can do Zoom conventions and appearances and 
and I, I can get pictures and, and whatnot to people if they need it, if they want it. But mostly it's Bob and I have a lot of time, a lot of fun. We are have so much fun even doing Zoom conventions because we're, you know, we're like, we're like the, a really, really, really poor man's Abbott and Costello or what's another team like Bob and Ray on radio. We just, we have a great deal of fun with each other. And that, that, that keeps going on. I, I would, I would, I'd be really pleased if we can get out of this thing and, and return to work, work, you know, work on, on the stage, work on the, in, in studios and do the work. But until that time comes or it's between the writing I mean, I love to write no matter what. I write a lot. I've written seven screenplays. None of them are worth anything. But I, I, I've spent 20 years on those, at least. Got very close. Ed Asner's a friend because I sent him uh, a screenplay, and he called me up out of the blue, and he said, uh, I asked John, is this John Herxler? I said, yeah. It was, in, in, it was back in L.A., in the middle of July sometime. And he said about 97, 98. He said, this is Ed Asner, and I just, I read your script, I really like it, and uh, he said, but you got to realize you can't, you can't believe what I have to say about anything, because I'm just an old commie pinko, and uh, <laughs> nobody, nobody believes me about anything, so I'm just telling you, and he, he worked to get that thing produced for like 20 years, came close with Martin Scorsese, and then he got sidetracked onto something else and it never happened but i had some interesting meetings with people back in the day ed harris i had a meeting ed ed was interested and ed is one of my favorite actors of all time and you know if, if that could have worked out that would have been good too but it's an interesting it's an interesting life in la <laughs> well <laughs> i i can i can only imagine and i do hope that when conventions do become live again that you decide to come towards the Rhode Island, Boston, Connecticut area for one of our conventions in this in this part of the world, part, part of the country. To, yeah, I've been up to Marlboro, Upper Mar, not Upper Marlboro's in Maryland. Marlboro is it? Is there a Marlboro outside of Boston? Probably. I, I try to avoid the Boston area. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, the I'm trying to think of now. If I were to say something about spoilers, the word, the immediate word following that, what would you think? Would that should be? Spoilers? Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, it's just part of the country. <laughs> That'd be my, my phrase. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> gotcha. of the show. But, and there's not, it's not that I can't uh, say anything about anything, but I can't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> but there's, there's stuff in the works, of course. But I keep busy, you know, basically keep occupied. If, if I didn't have writing, to do, I would really be uh, lost. Mm. But you know, when you write as an English teacher, when you write, you are you get immersed in the world that you're creating out of nothing, and and you live there. You know, it doesn't matter where your physical body is; mm. your, your heart and mind is there in that whatever world you're creating. So it's, it, it, I don't feel, I don't feel locked into this house. You know what I mean? Mm. Well. So, Good. Well, like I said, I, I do hope you come down to the Northeast. Like I said, you, I really enjoy speaking with you. It is a great, it's a great honor to talk to General Martok himself. Same here, Jeff. Again, thank you for your service. I, I think that you're doing a, a much needed, you're doing much needed work in modern America. 
Well, I, I, I do my best. <laughs> Some days more successful than others, but I do my best. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's fantastic. So. Thank you so much, sir. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And, oh, my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many, so many amazing people from the comic book world over at SpoilerVerse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds from the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Swillivers.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. If you want to help support the site? You can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials, but if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going <laughs> to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And... Even more.